Let's pray and we'll get started. Father, we just thank you. Just pray your spirit would teach us, Lord. Just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're going to kind of two steps forward, one step back. I'm going to go back to Genesis 12, starting at uh, verse 10. And so uh, we covered this at the very end last week. And it's kind of, it was, I was thinking about it all week long. And so I think we need to go back and look at it. This is where um, uh, Abraham leaves the promised land and goes into uh, Egypt. So starting at verse 10, chapter 12, verse 10, it says, uh, Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. Uh, He was about to enter Egypt, uh, excuse me, as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, he says, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Uh, When the Egyptians see you, they they will say, uh, this is his wife, and then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you're my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. And so I think we talked about it last week. It was actually his half-sister, but uh, he was still a lie. Uh, and so reading on, it says in verse 14, When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. Uh, he treated Abram well for her sake, and uh, Abram acquired sheep and cattle and male and female donkeys male and female servants and camels. So as we read into it, you know, he kind of, they kind of tell this lie, and now Abraham's actually profiting from uh, the situation. Um, so, uh, you know, but I'm reading it. I'm not getting really good feelings about it. But in verse 17, it says, But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abraham's wife, uh, Sarai. So it doesn't give a lot of detail about you know, when this happened, we don't really know um, that these afflictions start, you know, the day that she walked into the palace or was she there for a while. We really don't know uh, what the situation was, but we know ultimately that God intervened in, in this situation. I think maybe it started uh, immediately. And, you know, it's kind of like uh, you, you get a, this is cold season, and so you got a cold in your house, and so you trying to figure out who can you blame it on. You know, you remember, oh, yeah, they were over. And, you know, so I think something something like that may have went on in uh, Pharaoh's house. But it affected him. And so I think basically at some point, this is just me, I have no way of knowing this for sure, but I I imagine uh, Abraham's wife probably wasn't real happy about the fact that, you know, they told this lie and she's in the palace and all that. So I'm thinking she probably told the Pharaoh, hey, you know, look, I think the God of Abraham here is making sure that, you know, nothing, nothing goes, if if the Pharaoh's sick, there's nothing going to happen between Sarah and the Pharaoh, you know what I'm saying? And so I think that she, and so he got sick, and so I think she probably said, I think, you know, hey, I think this has got something to do with the God of Abraham here. He does, doesn't approve of this. And so, uh, so in verse 18, We just know that Pharaoh summoned Abram and said, "Uh, what have you done to me? He said, and uh, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? And why did you say she's my sister? So that it took her to be my wife. Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Then the Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. And so when you, when I, you know, I was thinking about this whole situation a lot uh, this week is that, here we got Pharaoh, and Pharaoh comes out kind of like on the, the high moral ground here. Um, and Abraham's supposed to be the spiritual guy uh, in the room, right? But if you're following the story, you know, it looks like the Pharaoh's that guy. But that's really not uncommon even to today. You know, there's a lot of uh, uh, people on their own that are just moral people. You know, they're quote, good, good, good persons, you know, they're going to, they kind of do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And, and a, a lot of times, uh, people that are religious or Christians will come under fire from, 
uh, folks like that. And, you know, look at the hypocrites over there. You know, I'm, you know, I live my life better than them. But in the whole scheme of things, in God's economy, that doesn't really matter. You know, that doesn't matter about how good you are because how good is good enough? You know, that's the big question. Because, you know, I may be really good compared to that guy over there, but this guy over here looking at me saying, this guy's a train wreck, you know. I mean, I really got my stuff together. So what's how much good is good enough? And so God intervenes into that whole situation and says, you know what, my standard, nobody's good enough. So, you know, he gives us salvation through Christ. And so, um, so it's easy to kind of, uh, you know, to to look at Abraham's life, you know, and see stuff like that. But, but, uh, <clears throat> yeah, the question number one, it says, uh, or the Abraham left, what? The blank is what? The promised land, right? And was it, was it God's will? Was this God's will for Abraham? In other words, was it God's will that he would leave the promised land? So I'm a, you can decide on that. Um, you know, when you if you do a lot of studying on this, a lot of people uh, would tend to uh, bash uh, Abraham because he he left. And you know, and I, you know, I don't think it was God's will that he would leave the promised land. God told him, "Hey, you need to go here, right?" And so he went there. He didn't tell him go to Egypt. But uh, you know, Abraham, there was a famine. He was thinking, "Oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do?" So he goes ahead and he goes. But uh, <clears throat> When you look in the Bible, every place else in the Bible, when they talk about Abraham, they talk about him as, you know, being like a, you know, a great man of faith. I mean, it's just, it's everywhere in the Bible. He's in, the, you know, in 11, Hebrews 11, the, the Hall of Fame of Faith. You know, he's in there a couple of times, I think, him and Sarah both. <clears throat> and so with us, you know, Uh, it's kind of easy because we got the whole story in front of us. We got the written word of God and we can look at this and, you know, and kind of it's easy to kind of pass judgment on. But if you think about uh, Abraham, he was like a plank owner, uh, like in the, in the Navy when they get a, when they build a first, they, they got a new ship in that initial crew that takes it, that ship, they're the first people to take part in that ship and to get it going and everything. And so in some ways, uh, Abraham is in that position here, but he's, I mean, but he's the, the focal point of what's going to become, you know, the redemption of the whole world is going to come through this guy. And he doesn't have the advantage that we have or he's the written word of God. Uh, in some ways, he's kind of figuring it out as he goes along. And so, um, but more important, I think that, you know, there's nowhere in the Bible that I could find anyway that uh, where God judges Abraham on this. In other words, there, there's not, nothing comes against Abraham because of what he did. I mean, even though, you know, the thought of it is despicable. But uh, I think what it made me think is, well, it made me really take the focus off of Abraham and focus on God, okay? And so when you start looking at, God in this whole situation, uh, they, you know, God's kind of got Abraham. He's told him to do something, you know, and he went and he kind of did it. You know, he told him to leave his family and all this stuff, but he didn't really leave his family. He told him to go to the place, and he went there, but then he left. And it's almost like uh, dealing with a kid, you know, where, you know, you tell him to do something, and they kind of get it half right, and they're your kid, and you love them, you know. And so, you know, well, that's okay. You can, there's certain things you're going to let slide. And so I think that's... Um, kind of what's going on here, I think that the thing that really hit me was is that it's like uh, it's like the it's kind of reveals the character of God and God's unconditional love. And I'd say that God loved Abraham enough to kind of give him some reins, right? Uh, I think that it almost has to be that because He never judges him for it at all. And so number two is part of God's character is the blank error is to love everyone on the planet. And that's just who God is. I mean, that's just the part of the nature of God that he loves everyone. And so the, 
the next blank is God loves Abraham. And so I got some verses <clears throat> written down there right, that, that kind of, we're going to talk a little, just a little bit about the love of God. And so John 3.16, it says that, for God so loved the world, right? And so does that include you? For God so loved the world. That includes everyone, right? Everyone, including you. And I think a lot of people forget that, uh, you know, God loves them. And, I, and if, you, if you're brutally honest, everybody is kind of looking for acceptance or for someone to love them and to care about them. And a lot of times, you know, we come to church, we do a lot of stuff, but we kind of forget about this thing that God really loves us and God really cares about us. I mean, he cares about us enough that, you know, in Abraham's case here, you know, Abraham made some mistakes and it's kind of like God looked the other way. It's all right. I still love you. I still love you, Abraham. And so, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So that's part of the love of God. Uh, and in Genesis, earlier in Genesis, in Genesis 9, 5, and 6, this is when Noah is getting off of the ark, and God's given him, you know, a, a bunch of instructions to do. And <clears throat> and one that I think is pretty interesting, and for some people it's controversial, uh, I think if you really think it through, though, not so much. It says, starting in verse 5, it says, And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being, too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God, in the image of God has God made mankind. So this is basically, in this phrase here, he's setting up human government, saying that, you know, that man's going to rule over himself. But the, the key part about it is, is if, and capital punishment is also being instituted here. <clears throat> and the thing of it is, is that um, he says, whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God... As God made mankind. So we're all made in the image of God. And so he doesn't say that whoever believes in me, right? It's just everybody. God loves everybody enough to where he's saying, look, if, if something happens to you here and somebody else does it to you, they need to be held accountable for that. Because I care about every one of you, right? It doesn't matter if you believe in me or not, but I care about every one of you. And so... I know that's kind of a strange way to maybe think about it, but that's just the way it is. That's what God says. And so there's always the thought that where people will say, well, well, what about if they make a mistake and, you know, they get the wrong guy and they execute the wrong guy? Well, uh, the way I think about it, and it may or may not be right, but the way I think about it is that if God can create the whole universe if he can do all of that and if say we send a guy to the death penalty by accident i think god has all the tools that he needs to set that straight on the other side in eternity and so if you're if you ultimately believe that god is sovereign and then uh there's there's comfort in knowing obviously we're not going to enter into a, a death sentence for somebody you know uh, without you know just flippantly because god cares about everybody but our, the other side of that is, is that if if a mistake is made and we know that we all make mistakes that, that god's going to take care of that person uh, for the rest of eternity so <clears throat> so uh, number three is god loves and then you can fill in the blank there. Um, I think God loves everybody in this room. So um, it was, I'm kind of selfish. I'd say God loves me. So. 
<laughs> but, uh, yeah. So number four, by definition, God, what? What's, God is what? God is love, yeah. By definition, God is love. I mean, that's just who he is, no matter what. You know, it's like we're saved by grace, right? There's nothing we can do to earn God's favor. There's nothing we can do. It's a, just the whole idea of salvation is a total gift. So First John 4, 8, it says, Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. So that's kind of a loaded verse, right? It tells us a whole lot about God. <clears throat> tells us a whole lot about ourselves, too. Psalm 36 um, is, uh, this is pretty interesting, one, five through seven. I think you could write a song about this. Uh, it says, your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains, your justice like the great deep. Lord, you preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. I think that the psalmist, when he's writing this, just has really has no way to really express the love of God. You know, it reaches to the heavens. I mean, we're talking, that's like, how do you describe like total, complete love, right? So he's saying, you know, it reaches to the heavens. Where's the heavens? I mean, is that to the edge of the universe? Um, your faithfulness to the skies, you know, God is faithful. You know, he's faithful to love us. He's, um, you know, faithful to give us a way out. You know what I'm saying? Your righteousness like the highest mountains. I was thinking when, uh, I was just thinking this. What, is, what was this guy thinking when he wrote this? And we took a trip this summer and uh, we're going through a mountain pass up near Bishop. And I mean, we're up at like 9,000 feet and we're in a pass and there was just sheer rock mountains that were just went, I don't know how high. And so the psalmist is saying, you know, that... Uh, your righteousness, you know, that's like God's always right. And he's always right to like the top of the mountains, you know, and it's, it's pretty cool. And your justice, right? And these are all things that people want. You know, everybody wants justice, right? So your justice is like the great deep to the bottom of the ocean. So he says you preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love. God's love never fails. And then the last one, uh, you're gonna, I want you to turn to this verse in your Bible, if you will. Romans 5, 8. I'm just going to read it while you're going there. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You guys there? I'll read it again. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when you get there, there's... uh, uh, I want you to draw a line through us and we. Just draw one single line through it. And then right above that, just write your name. And then write your name. So when I read that, you have to adjust the grammar a little bit. I think you get the idea. So when I read it, it says, but God demonstrates his own love for Tom in this. Uh, While Tom was still a sinner, Christ died for Tom. So you put your name in there. Sometimes it's easy to read this and think about it like, Oh yeah, this is something about. This is something about. Uh, you guys having fun over there? What, did you already have your name written in there? <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's a good one. Dennis underlined his name several times. Hey, it's nice though, isn't it? 
yeah, that's what I'm saying. Uh, you know, uh, this whole thing. And the same love that God was shown towards Abraham, he shows towards all of us. And so it's kind of a nice thing. And we forget about that, you know, forget about it. A lot of people don't think they're worthy to be loved or whatever, but, you know, no, that's what God is. That's what God does. So, uh, uh, number five, you actually have to write something here. Uh, it's a very short verse. Uh, just write Second Corinthians five seven, and this uh, this would apply to Abraham, but it applies to all of us. But it's kind of appropriate for this, and it's a very short verse. You can write it in, and and it's kind of a good thing to remember. Uh, at, you know, the fork in the road or decision time or whatever. It says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. So Abraham was kind of in a fix, right? And so, I mean, there was a there a drought, and you know, he's got all these herds and stuff, and so he's looking around, and what he's seeing is telling him, hey, we need to get out of here. And so he go, ends up going into Egypt, and... But, you know, I'm not going to second-guess Abraham. I probably would have done the same thing, I mean, to be honest with you. But but it's something that we need to consider and think about. We walk by faith, not by sight. So, and starting with Genesis 13, chapter 13. Everybody get a chance to write that verse? Uh, it says, so Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. And Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and in gold. So, you know, from a business standpoint, the whole trip into Egypt, I think, worked out for him. I'm not sure he left there with a good taste in his mouth. You know, the, kind of the, the Pharaoh was kind of dressing him down when he left. And from the Negev, that just means the south, okay? And so he's going north, but he's going to the south. There's an area in southern Israel that's called the south, but in relationship where he was at, he was going north to go into it. He went from place to place until he came to Bethel. And so he was, you know, they're nomadic herders, and so they were, were, um, you know, they would go to a place and they would graze and then they go to another place and they graze. And, and so then he came to Bethel. <clears throat> and he says, to the place between Bethel and Ai. Remember Ai? I mean, Bethel is the house of God. This keeps coming up and Ai is the heap of ruins, right? And and it's just amazing to me that these places are named this. And so often through life, you know, you got choices. Are you going to, are you going to, be in the house of God, or are you going to go the other way to the, you know, to the to the heap of ruins? And normally, when you get away from the house of God, you end up in the heap of ruins. And so, it just so happened their city there named that. <clears throat> it says between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar. And then Abraham called on the name of the Lord. So, I don't know, did he go there on purpose or was he just grazing his flocks? But he comes upon that altar, which is probably a big pile of rocks. Maybe they did a sacrifice on it or something. Not really sure, but he gets there and the altar's there. And so I'm sure he thinks about the stuff that God told him when he was there before. So he's kind of going back uh, to where things were good between him and God. And so uh, one thing that's kind of interesting that I thought about is when he was in Egypt, he didn't build any altars in Egypt. You know what I'm saying? He got rich. He got a lot of gold and silver. He got a lot of stuff like that, but he didn't build any altars there. So in verse 5, now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, uh, but the land did not support them while they stayed while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great 
that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. The Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at the time. So they came out, you know, Abraham, when he left uh, Ur and then they went to Haran, all that, he was a pretty wealthy guy at that point. I mean, he had a lot of flocks and stuff like that. And so I'm sure through his travels, you know, the sheep and the donkeys and whatever he had out there were breeding. They went into Egypt and got more stuff. And so when, by the time he comes out of Egypt, him and Lot, they're like like major uh, you know, ranchers, uh, nomadic ranchers. And so they got so much stuff that they can't, there's not enough water if they keep them all together. And his herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen were kind of fighting over stuff. And and uh, plus they were they were in this land of the Canaanites that didn't even belong to them. And so the Canaanites were there, and so in order to, to you know, they, they had to do something. Uh, so in verse 8, so uh, Abram said to Lot, uh, let's not have any quarreling between you and me, between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives, or other versions say brothers. Um, Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company if you go left. I'll go to the left. I'll go to the right. And it says, if you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. So it's kind of interesting. The first thing that he talks about is uh, uh, he basically, he's concerned about his family. Remember, his brother died, and so Lot's been going around to replace with uh, Abraham. And they're, I'm sure he kind of looked at Lot like he was his son. And... Uh, and so they get into this situation where I'm sure that, you know, that, you know, if you got a bunch of people working for you and then they're complaining about, you know, the other guy's herds and, you know, you got all that stuff going on. And uh, so I think uh, that probably some of that might even start to get between uh, Abraham and Lot. And so I, Abraham's first thing is, hey, look, we're brothers, you know, uh, you know, uh, we don't need to be quarreling and do all this stuff. Um, uh, so he basically says, you know, hey, you choose where you want to go. And uh, it's kind of interesting because in family situations, you know, it, it always takes two people to argue. And sometimes it's not even whatever you're going to argue about after you've argued about it you kind of think back and think, was that even really worth it? And so a lot of times it's uh, it's easier uh, to just, you know, say, you know, whatever. Whatever you want to do is fine with me, right? I know, uh, I know I've learned over the years a good phrase is, it's all my fault, I accept full responsibility, right? And that, that has a, a way of diffusing... Uh, uh, situations that would come up and and so uh, uh i think that's kind of what um, abraham's doing here uh, so uh he kind of he kind of took the the high ground really and in some ways uh he's he lives out a bible verse that shows up uh, 2000 years later so if you want to turn to philippians chapter 2 And so what he's actually living out, what this verse says. Chapter 2, verse 14. So it says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Okay, so he doesn't want to argue with Lot. It says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. And so, uh, you know, that's a good one to tell your kids right here. Uh, but if you if you read through it, the reasoning behind it is a little different. It says, so that you may become blameless and pure, uh, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. 
And so if you take this back to what Abraham did, so him and Lot are basically have got a little conflict. And so what Abraham says, oh, you know what? I'm not, I don't want to get into a big argument with, with, uh, with uh, Lot over this here because ultimately that's going to look bad to the Canaanites and these other people here. Here we are, you know, uh, you know, uncle and nephew here causing a big scene, you know, and all this. So rather than do that, I'm just going to go ahead and let Lot choose. And so that's kind of, uh, it's Philippians 2.14 and 15, you know, 2,000 years before it was written. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. It's interesting because that warped and crooked generation, that's like timeless. I mean, that would definitely apply to when Abraham walked the earth. It applied when Paul wrote it, and I think it applies today, too. <laughs> so it's just amazing how that uh, that verse uh, just spans all of the time. So basically, uh, when they didn't argue, they avoid dragging God's name through the mud in front of the Canaanites. So it's kind of interesting after after Abraham says, hey, you know, hey, you pick, man. You go to the right, I'll go to the left. You go to the left, I'll go to the right. So in verse 10, back in Genesis, uh, Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zor was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. Uh, and then in parentheses, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. So there's kind of a difference now between Abraham and Lot. I mean, I mean Lot didn't even think twice. He just said, you know, I, I can just see him there. Obviously, they're standing up some high because they could see, uh, it says they could see the whole plain. And so Lot's just looking at this plain and uh, his wasn't even a thought of like, oh, hey, uncle, you know, maybe you want to go there. And it wasn't that at all. He just saw that everything over here looked really good, you know. Everything's really good. I'm going to take advantage of what's really good. And so, uh, you know, if you think about it, Abraham was standing in the same spot, looking at the same thing. And so I think he had to know before he even offered it up to Lot what Lot was going to do. You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? So Abraham, I mean, he was plus he's an older guy, you know. He had to say, well, I'll, I'll just offer it up, and, you know, and he'll take this, and I'm just willing to take, you know, what God has for me here. And so I think we're starting to see uh, uh, the faith in Abraham, that Abraham has. There's no way of knowing for sure, but, I mean, common sense says two of you are standing there. It looks really great over here, and you offer it up. Plus he knows Lot, Lot takes it. It's kind of interesting because Lot, you know, you know, all that glitters isn't always gold because it, it ends up not really working out that well for Lot. So, um, so anyway, Lot sees the deal and takes it. Um, so um, and it says the two men parted company. Uh, Abram lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and sinning greatly against the Lord. So um, if you go back to Genesis 12, uh, what God had originally commanded Abraham, I'll just read it to it. It says, uh, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. So, um, he's basically telling him to go from your country, from your family, right? And and your father's household to a place I'll show you. So God had given uh, Abraham some pretty specific instructions, and uh, Abraham didn't actually follow those. You know, you know, the first when they went from Ur to Haran, it was, you know, his dad and Lot and everybody went. And then once his dad died and he was up in Haran, and then they... 
they, they left there. He took Lot with him from there. But it's kind of interesting because now we get to this spot here where they've got so many herds, they can't live together, and so they have to separate. Uh, and so, like, uh, it's basically, uh, you know, I don't know, is this the providence of God or what? But they end up separating. And so what God had originally commanded actually happens, okay? It comes to fruition. So God originally told him, hey, do this. And he did a bunch of other stuff. But ultimately, him and Lot do actually separate. So in 14, he says, um, The Lord said to Abram after Lot parted from him, Look around from where you are to the north and the south and the east and the west. All the land, excuse me, all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring. How long? Forever. Forever. So I'm reading it again. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him. So it's almost like he was waiting for this separation to happen. It's very clear. I mean, it's in there for a reason. After Lot was gone, in other words, okay, we've got to the point where we wanted to be when we started right? You, you're separated from everything, right? He says, he says, uh, look around from where you are to the north and the south and east and the west. All, all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. So um, if you fast forward the Bible timeline, you know, there's the time of Jesus. And then in 70 AD, uh, the Romans come in and they totally obliterate the place, burn it to the ground. And the Jews are dispersed all over the world at that point. They're just everywhere. I mean, they're in Russia, they're in Europe. A bunch of them end up uh, in the United States. I mean, this whole, uh, all the Jews are everywhere, scattered all over the world. And, and then in 1948, okay, so basically what? nearly 2,000 years later. The Jewish state gets put back together. And they, because of all the, you know, the atrocities have been committed against the Jews in World War II. And so they say, okay, we're going to give this land back to the Jews. And Jews come from all over the world and form their country up again after a couple thousand years. If you really stop and think about that, you know, uh, just even uh, in some families or whatever that, uh, you know, maybe the family will be together and then somebody will move off to another part of the country and you kind of lose touch, you know, and just things sort of kind of die away. But for 2,000 years, uh, the Jewish people keep their identity and when they're, when the nation is reinstated, a bunch of them go back there, and, you know, we're looking, we've got the nation of Israel still to this date. The fact that that could even happen is, to me, a miracle in itself. But it goes back to what God said to Abraham here. He says, all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. So there was, a, you know, God is faithful, right? He made his promise. Things happen, but you know what? It comes back together what God says is going to happen is ultimately going to happen, and I think you can count on that. It's kind of interesting, too. Another thing, I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but uh, I was looking into this, is that in 1947, is on paper, the UN got together and said, you know what, this is a bad thing. We want to set things in motion here to establish, you know, the state of Israel again. This is in 1947. You know, and then it, it actually it actually happened in 1948. But also in 1947, in the caves in Qumran, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so I don't know, it's just one of those, you know, coincidences, whatever. But it's kind of interesting that they would, you know, the, the, the scrolls and what the scrolls really sh- uh, showed us is that uh, effectively the, the word of God had not changed over the thousand-year span that the, that the scrolls went back closer to the, uh, the original. So it kind of validated uh, the Old Testament scriptures. So it's pretty amazing. In the same year that that happens, you know, uh, Israel kind of 
gets penciled in, hey, we're going to put this country back together. So, and it all goes back to this promise that God made Abraham. So what's that got to do with us? Well, if God makes these promises, right, and then you can hold on to that. I mean, the promises he makes to Abraham, we can see over thousands of years have been kept. The promises that he makes to you are going to be the same. So we're reading about this one guy, Abraham. We're kind of reading his mail, looking over his shoulder a little bit. But in reality, uh, Abraham is a man just like us. And we're going to see as we read through, you know, Abraham's going to goof up and he's going to make mistakes. And, you know, uh, I remember the first time we went through Genesis a long time ago. When I got done with it, I was like, well, God's pretty awesome, you know, because, you know, God, it was how the God of the universe is actually dealing with real people just like you and me. And it's kind of a nice thing to know. So, <clears throat> so, um, so in verse 14, um, uh, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had departed from him. So there's this separation that's happening between Lot and uh, Abram. And Lot's kind of going towards the world, right? He's seeing the bright lights. He's seeing all the, the stuff over here. So he's moving that way where uh, Abraham's still over here camped out next to Bethel, right? The house of God. So you see a separation and uh, he's, it's actually, a, you know, you know, theologically they call it uh, sanctification, this idea of being set apart. So Abraham's starting to become set apart for God, and Lot's kind of being set apart for the world. Okay, we know that Lot's actually a believer, and we're going to see that later on. But Lot is kind of straying off uh, on this thing here. So, But, uh, yeah, so Abraham's kind of moving closer to God and all this. So in, in number six, it says, the, lo- the longer Abraham walks with God, and then uh, it's kind of a long one, the more God reveals his plan for Abraham. Okay? The longer Abraham walks with God, the more God reveals his plan for Abraham. So remember in the beginning, he just basically told him to give him land, and so now he's getting down and... Uh, uh, tells him that, you know, that uh, he talked about his offspring. Oh, yeah. Oh, I see. I missed it. In verse uh, 16, he says, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Okay, so he's kind of get, drilling down on some details. In verse 16, I'm sorry, I missed that. Uh, it says, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. So if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. So he's basically saying, you're going to have a whole bunch of descendants from you Keeping in mind now that his wife Sarah can't have kids. Okay? So that. What? Where? Oh. Oh, and number seven? Yeah, yeah. The longer I walk with God, yeah, the more God reveals his plan for me. Oh, yeah. I was hoping that that wouldn't, that you guys would. And that's true, you know? The, the farther you get into the walk with God, I'd say, the better it gets. In some ways, I feel good about saying that. In other ways, I don't. Because I have to be old to say that. <laughs> you know? Just that much closer to God. So in verse 18, it says, So Abram went to live near the great tree's of uh, Mamre at Hebron, or Hebron. That actually means fellowship. That That's kind of interesting. You know, he's this whole thing, he's living in Bethel, near Bethel, the house of God, and now he goes to Hebron or Hebron. I'm not sure how that's pronounced, but 
it actually means fellowship or association. So there's some really cool uh, names here uh, that, you know, it's like a computer, just click on it, tells you in original language that hey, this is what it is. Uh, and what did he do there? He built an altar to the Lord. This whole thing, you know, what I get out of this more and more and more is that God wants us to remember. You know, I've said it before. I just keep saying it again. God wants us to remember him, you know. So this whole thing, God loves us. He wants us to remember that. And the way Abraham did it, he built these altars. So he'd be wandering around. He'd show up. Maybe he didn't remember. He he might build the altar. And you know how we get distracted on doing whatever we're doing. You know, and then maybe six months, a year, two years later, he shows up, and there it is. Oh, yeah. This is what God did here. So, Genesis 14. I've got to speed this up a little bit. This is, when I first read through this, is about clear as mud. Uh, but, uh, so I, what I did is I made some drawings and stuff, and so hopefully I'll, we'll get through it. It says, at the time, uh, and excuse me, I'm going to butcher some of these guys' names, and I apologize, God. That, uh, <clears throat> at the time when uh, Amphanel, Amphanel was king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elassar, Kedo uh, Laomir, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings went to war against Bera, king of Sodom. So there's two groups of kings here, and the easiest way to get it straightened out is there's a group of four and there's a group of five. Okay, that first group of four, we just read that. And those that group of four, they went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sedum. So that's the last, the, the group of five, right? So the group of five joined forces in the valley of Sedum, that is the Death Sea Valley, for 12 years. They had been subject to Ketel Lamar, and K. I'm just going to call him K. Okay? So K is in that first group of four. So the... And so, okay, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. So these, the king of Sodom, king of Gomorrah, the group of five, you know, they're basically paying tributes to these other four kings, and they're kind of, you know, taxes are getting high, taxation, well, representation, whatever you want to call it. And so they rebelled. In the 14th year, Kay and the kings allied with him went out and de- defeated the Rephaites and Ashroth, Carnaim, is the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shabiakur, yeah, and the Hortites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, near the desert. Then they turned back and they went to Enmeshpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Malachites, and as well as the Amorites who were living in uh, Hazron Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Beta, that's the five kings, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Siddim against Kay, the king of Elam, titled the king of Goim, Armamphel, king of Shinar, against the other four kings. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some men... Uh, fell into fell into them, and the rest fled into the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot in his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Okay. I don't know, but I really struggled with that, to be honest, to be honest with you. I think it, on a first read, I actually had to draw it out. Okay, but this is basically, there's two groups. And there's the the four kings. Where did my mouse go? Okay, uh, let me do this. Okay, the four kings here are from outside of the area. And I'm going to show you a map in a second. 
So these guys here ruled over these guys here for 12 years. Okay, so these are the guys that are local to Abraham because uh, you can see Sodom and Gomorrah is not far away because Lot's hanging there. In the 13th year, they rebelled. So what happens is, is when these guys come into the land, these are the people that it, it documents them uh, beating up on. Okay, so the Rephaim, which were actually uh, old tribe of giants so they're big guys all right and so what's kind of interesting is the people that it documents them beating up on are kind of bad dudes except for these guys here the zuzim okay they're they're uh roving creatures is what the word means so they're just randomly moving around so they're nomadic people and i think they just got in the way and so these guys are coming through, so they took them out because they were in the way. So the uh, the MMs, they're terrorists, okay? So these are crazy people, like they're terrorists. And so these guys coming through, they're beating up on big guys and just people that are in their way, and they got these terrorists, and then the Horites are cave dwellers. And so they're not, you know, it's like... A, if you're marching through and you're doing a conquest, if you're on flat land or whatever, piece of cake, you take care of business, you know. But these guys were up in caves, and they went up and they rooted people out of caves and took care of them. So I guess what I took from this when I started to understand who they documented that they beat up on, these are some pretty bad dudes that are coming in. I have a map, but this thing, let me go back here. Let me switch it to the map. (laughs) Technology. Okay, kind of a familiar map. We looked the same map we looked at last week. I just added some stuff to it. But... You know, all right, now it's going to work. They came from this area here, the group of four kings, and it's a pretty good chance that they followed the same route and came in. But what happened is they come in and they, they went down, and they went as far as down here. So they marched past kind of Sodom and Gomorrah and everything. They went and they conquered all this area down here, and these guys up here are probably thinking, uh, wow, we dodged the bullet, right? Because they sort of marched right by him, and they conquered all this land down here in Seir and El Paran. And so they they really went down here. And I think they probably might even been moving into new territory. But then they turned right around and went right back up. And that's where this skirmish that they're talking about here happened between uh, the the four kings and the five kings. And basically... They end up, these guys from over here, they end up kind of beating up on the five kings that were local there in Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, the king of Sodom, the king of uh, Gomorrah, and so on. Okay? So, does that kind of make sense? I mean, I don't know. I've been thinking about this for like days now, so I can imagine if you don't get it right off, because I didn't get it right off. But basically, guys coming from out of town come over here. They march down. They conquer this area here. And all these, uh, the, the five, the five uh, kings of, in the Sodom and Gomorrah area, they think they make out. In reality, these guys come back up and take care of business in here. And that's where they, uh, they have their big battle and they carry a lot off. Okay? So... Verse 13, I think we're going to be able to finish this. It says, A man who had escaped uh, came reporting this to Abraham the Hebrew. So this is the first time the, you know, that Hebrew is in the Bible. So, so um, it's kind of like uh, Abraham has enough people and everything now. He's kind of like his own clan or kind of a little tribe that's in the land there. Um, now, Abraham was living near the great trees of Mamre, uh, the Amorite, 
a brother of Eshcol and Anar, all whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Uh, so uh, 318 guys, uh, if you think about it, it kind of gives you an idea of like uh, how big of a, of a thing that uh, Abraham was running. So if he had 318 that were like of fighting age, so he probably had, you know, men younger than that and probably had men older than that plus their wives and all their kids. And so it's not hard to imagine thousand people when Abraham would get up and move. Pretty big group, pretty good, pretty, pretty big group. And it says, it says, um, they went as far as Dan and, um, during the night, Abram divided his men and attacked and routed them, pursuing them as far north as uh, Hobah, north of Damascus. Uh, he recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and, and his possessions together with the women and the other people. So from where he, just to kind of give you an idea of what this is not like, oh, yeah, they chased some guys over from Lakeside to Santee. He went a total of uh, almost 250 miles north uh, chasing these guys because he finally got them, and then at night he he split up, and then he chased them for another 100 miles. And so it was a pretty serious uh, military operation here. I mean, and if you think about who is the guys that he's whooping up on, remember the list of people that they had conquered? I mean, I was just like putting this into, thinking about this. What is going on here? These are like some, uh, these guys that come from the area of the world, you know, over the plain of uh, Shinar, you know, uh, from that original. If you know anything about the Ninevites, the Ninevites were just horrible. I mean, they were like, the, they were like warrior people. I mean, they were just, that's who they were. And they came from this same area. And so Abraham gets his 318 guys together. There was probably other ones that went, you know, uh, the... Uh, uh, Mamre and his brother, they they brought some people along. But the armies that they beat were, they weren't just a bunch of slouches. So either Abraham was just an awesome military man, it's kind of out of the blue, or you think God entered into this? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. So... Um, yeah, um, if you look at it, uh, the, what I thought of is, you know, I spent 20 years in the military, so, you know, there's things that we deal with and you think about. And uh, from a practical standpoint, what happened here was, in my way of thinking, pretty much impossible because they're like uh, warrior nations that were coming in. I mean, they'd come in and conquered 12 years earlier, and they were, you know, extorting money from the kings in uh, the the valley there. And then they take Lot, and Abram says, you know what? Hey, that's my brother. You're not going to get him. And he goes up and rescues him, gets all their stuff, and brings it back. And so I guess there's one verse that I thought of in uh, uh, Jesus and uh, Matthew. He says... Uh, Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So um, I think that's definitely what happened here. But the best part of the story is going to come next week because uh, Abraham brings all this stuff back, and then he has a, he has an encounter with the king of Sodom, and then there's this uh, a priest, Melchizedek is there, it's really pretty cool. So let's pray. Uh, Father, we just uh, thank you that we can uh, look at the life of Abraham and just uh, see you, uh, God, and see you, Father, that uh, what an awesome Father you are that with uh, just love that reaches to the heavens. And Lord, we just thank you that um, just through Jesus that we can uh, be one with you and just Thank you, and Lord, I pray as we go out at the week that we can 
we think about this stuff and live our lives uh, for you. Let's pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.